to the Medical Republic. It's Penny here, and today I'm speaking with Professor Joshua Davis. Professor, you have a number of jobs. Could you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, sure. So I'm, I'm an infectious diseases physician at um, John Hunter Hospital in Newcastle, and I'm also a uh, senior research fellow based at the Menzies School of Health Research in Darwin. And sort of in parallel to those things, I'm the president of the Australasian Society for Infectious Diseases. And we're going to talk today about the ASCOT trial, the Australasian COVID-19 trial, for which you're a principal investigator. First, I just want to um, apologise, listeners, we're both recording this from home, so you might hear a street sweeper truck at my end of things and some building at uh, Professor Davis's end. Um, but before we talk about ASCOT uh, more generally, there aren't a lot of good things to say about this pandemic, but the speed of science has been quite incredible. Um, Professor Davis, you've been in infectious diseases for quite a while. How, how does it compare with, say, the original SARS 17 or 18 years ago? Oh, it's amazing. It's chalk and cheese really compared to that. And that's um, just testament to how much technology has advanced in the, um, since 2003 when SARS Mark I came. And I guess a good uh, benchmark is looking at how long it took us to develop a diagnostic test. So when SARS came around in 2003, it took several months, between sort of three and five months before there was a diagnostic test rolled out so people could do a PCR and see if a patient had SARS or not. Hmm. Whereas for this virus, it was a matter of weeks, uh, around three weeks after the first patient presented. And within that time, they had identified what virus was causing the problem sequenced the virus, cultured it, developed a PCR and rolled out a commercial PCR platform. So that, that was just incredibly fast. And that's just one example. There was a, there's a lot of other um, uh, science and, and clinical research that's happened way faster than normal as well. It is pretty incredible. And we were lucky that SARS was able to be contained. But um, this is a much more slippery customer. And if it's going to stick around, we quite desperately need therapies. And there have been, as you say, like the, the science is coming out so rapidly. There have been lots of uh, smaller, more kind of quick and dirty studies that have been published or posted. And in fact, they're coming out at a rate of uh, 500 papers per day, I'm told. Uh, but Ascot is a large multi-centre randomised control trial with four treatment arms. How long does it usually take to get one of these off the ground? Uh, generally, from the from the time you have the idea for the trial to the time you recruit the first patient is normally around 12 to 18 months or often longer uh, because you have to get funding as well as many other things, ethics, designing the protocol, database, etc. So probably an average would be two years. Um, for the ASCOT trial, we've done all of that work in, in around six to eight weeks. That, that's insane. How, how have you been able to uh, compress that time frame so much? It's mainly through just a huge effort from a lot of different people. Everyone's willing to help and wants to help. This trial's being coordinated by the Doherty Institute at the University of Melbourne. Um, and then we also have two major coordinating hubs in addition to the Doherty. And one's the Hunter Medical Research Institute in Newcastle, where I work. And the second is the University of Queensland Centre for Clinical Research up in Brisbane. And then it's also being run under the umbrella of the Australasian Society for Infectious Diseases, or ACIC, Clinical Research Network. 
So that's a network of investigators and, and hospitals around Australia and New Zealand that collaboratively do research together. And that's why we've been able to, you know, really quickly get 70 hospitals signed up. I'm running this trial with uh, a couple of colleagues in Melbourne, Professor Steve Tong and Justin Denham, um, who are also infectious diseases physicians. And Steve and I were just about to launch a huge randomised trial on staph bacteremia when this COVID thing came along. And for that trial, we had two or three um, project managers already employed. So we paused their work on the staph project and put it towards uh, this study. And colleagues elsewhere, David Patterson in Brisbane's working with us as well. He's another infectious diseases professor. And he has put his staff working on his project onto this instead. Other people have done work pro bono for us on developing databases, for example, and helping to coordinate. So it's been a, a, a large group effort. We've had a lot of meetings at, at in the evening and at night and and writing protocols on the weekends and things like that as well. That must be exhausting. And I believe you're continuing to work as an infectious diseases doctor during all this. Yeah, I am. And um, it's actually been much less busy than we thought it was going to be a month or two ago. <laughs> so we, I'm one of a number of infectious diseases physicians at my hospital. So we have turns of being on call for the clinical side of things. Um, and I was on for clinical infectious diseases a few weeks ago when we thought there was going to be a huge onslaught and we did have about four or five patients with COVID admitted to the hospital. So I was uh, going in and seeing them at the same time as planning this. Actually, the hospital has really been remarkably quiet, actually, um, <laughs> because of no elective surgery and less people coming to um, the emergency department, for example. It's a very good thing that our hospitals aren't swamped, but... Um... Are you confident of getting the numbers? You're aiming to recruit about 2,000 patients. Yeah, so that, that's a really good question. And it's a double-edged sword, the, the fact that the numbers have dropped off. I mean, we're really pleased that, that, that we're controlling this epidemic so well in Australia and that there's really very few new diagnoses happening each day. Um, that's obviously a great thing. For the trial, it, it's not so great. But if we go back a step and think, why are we doing this trial? We're not doing it to get a New England Journal publication. We're doing it to try and improve outcomes from this infection. So if um, if we put all this work into doing the trial and it ends up never recruiting, that's okay. I don't think that's going to be the case, though. Um, we've made a few adjustments to to deal with that fact. So one is we thought we'd be able to recruit that number of patients over about six months. We have 70 hospitals participating around Australia and New Zealand. Um, but we've Sorry, you faded out a little bit there. You said there are 70 hospitals in Australia and 11 in New Zealand? That's right. So we thought we'd be able to recruit the target number in about six months. But now, given what's happening with the epidemiology, we know that's not going to happen. Well, we don't know, I suppose, we think. So we've extended that time frame out to 18 to 24 months of recruitment. I think that even with really good control, there will be small uh, outbreaks happening from time to time and, and cases trickling in. Um, so we're ready for those when they happen. And then the other adjustment we've made is we're talking to um, collaborators in overseas. So in Singapore are likely to join 
the, the study and a couple of other countries were in earlier conversations with. All right. So now down to the, the meat of the study, what are you actually studying in ASCOT? What are your interventions? There's four arms to the trial. It's a randomised trial. One And the two candidate drugs, one is called lopinavir ritonavir or Calitra. That's an HIV drug. Um, and the second is hydroxychloroquine, um, also called Plaquenil. And I'm sure people have heard of this because there's been a lot mm-hmm. of media around it. Plaquenil is usually used as either an anti-malarial drug or for autoimmune conditions such as lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. So the four study arms is one is patients will get randomised to get Calitra for 10 days. The second is hydroxychloroquine for seven days. The third is a combination of both of those drugs. And the fourth is standard of care, so no adjunctive uh, antiviral drug. Hmm. And to take each of these in turn, what, what's the existing evidence base for hydroxychloroquine and for lipinavir or ritonavir as antivirals? And has anyone ever tested them in combination before for anything? Uh, so they've never been used in combination before, and there are huge trials of the same interventions happening overseas. There's one in the United Kingdom called the recovery trial, and they've already recruited 5,000 patients. However, none of those trials are using these two drugs in combination. Uh, And we thought that if these um, medications do have a beneficial effect, it's actually likely to be small, but it's quite possible there's a synergistic effect so that if you use them together, the small benefit may become more significant. So look, for hydroxychloroquine, um, the idea to use it for this virus really came from early investigations into SARS, Mark 1 and MERS coronaviruses um, in the laboratory. And if you expose those viruses in the lab, and more recently it's been done with, with COVID-19 virus SARS-CoV-2, If you expose them in the lab to hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine, those drugs slow down and prevent the life cycle of the virus. Hydroxychloroquine, as it turns out, is a a fair bit more potent than chloroquine, which is a good thing because chloroquine is really not available in Australia. So, okay, so we know in the lab that if you expose the virus to these drugs, it slows them down. We don't we know really not much from humans or animals yet. There was a couple of animal studies in mouse models um, of MERS and SARS Mark One, and also a primate model, and they both suggested that um, if you give chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine to animals early on in the course of the illness, it limits the lung damage. But if you give it when they're already really sick, it probably doesn't do much. And then in terms of human data on on hydroxychloroquine, well, there's no properly designed randomised trials at all being published yet. There's lots of observational studies, retrospective studies, and really dodgy studies that have been published. (laughs) One particular one that came out of France, that's the one that Donald Trump got all excited about and started calling the drug a game changer as a result. And that was an observational study with 30-odd patients in France. And just as one small example of, of that, what was a problem with that study is six of the patients who received hydroxychloroquine died or ended up in intensive care. So they just decided to not include those six in the analysis. Um, and of course, that makes the drug look a lot better. But that's like textbook how not to science. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's incredible that something so utterly flawed was able to have such a global impact now to the point where lupus patients can't get their hydroxychloroquine because there's been a run on the drug. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's the, one of the problems with preprints is uh, 
any reviewer worth their salt would have picked that up and made the authors change it. But if you publish a preprint, you can sort of get away with anything, really. You especially um, have an advantage when one of your co-authors is the editor-in-chief of the journal in which the paper is published. That's right, yes, and um, quite a big personality and uh, as well. Yeah. So that's hydroxychloroquine. Two days ago, uh, another paper came out to, that people have said concluded it proves it doesn't work, but that's mm -hmm. also not true. It was a retrospective study from the VA system in the United States and the with about 300 patients, um, some of whom received hydroxychloroquine, and those who got it had higher mortality in this reprint. However, it was not a randomised trial, and the group who got hydroxychloroquine were more unwell at baseline than those who didn't, which is always a problem with observational studies. So, look, none of them really answer the question one way or the other, so we need proper randomised trials. So even before Donald Trump gave hydroxychloroquine sales a little kick along, I did see people were citing it as a candidate. And obviously it had been tried on various viruses. What was the, I guess I'm wondering why, why did we think it was going to work on viruses to begin with? There must have been some observation back when it was used as an anti-malarial? Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, why did someone even try this in the first place? There are huge libraries of compounds and people do what they call in silico modeling. So they get the get a computer to look at how a drug works and whether it might be potentially effective against a particular virus. Um, and the computer then suggests, hey, why don't you try this, this and this against the virus? That's how people are doing it now. I'm not sure about back in 2003, but hydroxychloroquine, part of how it works is to prevent endocytosis. So one of the way the virus gets into the cell is endosomes, they're called. They go through the cell membrane and import it into the cell. And part of how hydroxychloroquine works is to stop those endosomes from forming. So I guess people thought that it could be useful for that reason. The, the other reason that hydroxychloroquine might be helpful is that it's an immunomodulatory drug, which is why it's used for lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. So it damps down excessive immune responses. Um, and that turns out to be important in severe lung damage and pneumonitis from, from this COVID virus. So mm. hydroxychloroquine, in theory, uh, might work by inhibiting the virus getting into the cell, but it also might work by stopping the host from overreacting to the virus. So a two-for-one effect there. And um, it has a, quite a list of side effects that you'll obviously be on the lookout for. And then when you combine it with Kaletra, you're hoping for a synergistic effect. Could you also find that there was a bad interaction between those drugs? Yeah, that's certainly possible. Probably not likely that there'll be an efficacy problem, but there could certainly be a safety problem by using them together because one of the key potential side effects of hydroxychloroquine is cardiac arrhythmias. It can prolong the QT interval and therefore increase your risk of getting torsade de pointe or ventricular tachycardia. Kaletra also, um, it's listed as a rare potential side effect is cardiac arrhythmias. So um, if you combine the two together, perhaps you'd get more cardiac arrhythmias. And we're aware of that and are monitoring closely people with repeated 12-lead ECGs. And we're also screening out patients who they have to have basically a very normal QT interval to get into the study. More likely GI intolerance and so nausea and diarrhea uh, uh -huh. could be a problem when you combine the drugs, but we'll find out. And um, Kalitra on its own, what, what, um, 
What's the mechanism there and why is it expected to work on SARS-CoV-2? So Kaletra is a protease inhibitor for the HIV virus. Um, so that stops the HIV virus from basically making proteins, which is how it reproduces itself. The SARS-CoV also has a protease uh, enzyme and gene as part of it. Now, it's not exactly the same as the HIV proteins, but it is similar enough that lopinavir, itonavir does inhibit the function of that viral protease. In vitro, there are, there's work to show that if you expose SARS-CoV-2 in cell lines to Kaletra, that it inhibits its growth um, at clinically achievable concentrations. Um, and then there's also data from animal models, mouse and mice and, um, and primates, again, similar to what I said for hydroxychloroquine, that early in disease it may have a benefit, but probably not late. The other drug that there's been a lot of hype around is remdesivir, which is um, so much so much hype that Gilead, that the maker, actually wouldn't supply it to you. They're restricting it to countries which have got a higher kind of caseload. Um, again, that, that was designed for Ebola. It didn't really work on Ebola. And why is it expected to work on SARS-CoV-2? Expected might not be the right word. It's hoped, <laughs> I think, is more <laughs> of the word. Um, so remdesivir is inhibits um, the RNA polymerase of a broad range of RNA viruses. So that includes Ebola and coronaviruses. And the RNA polymerase is what the virus uses to copy its genome. Um, so you'd expect if, if, a, if a drug inhibits that well, it's going to stop the virus replicating. And, it, and in vitro remdesivir is fairly effective at stopping viral replication, but it's different to the other drugs we've talked about because the other drugs have an established efficacy and safety profile for many years for other indications whereas remdesivir is an orphan drug it's not actually registered for use for anything else it's in development by gilead and was sort of in limbo um, when this came along because it didn't end up working really in ebola i think a lot of the hope for remdesivir is is just that, it's hope and hype rather than based on good science. It's being used a lot and there's certainly a lot of anecdotes and a few case reports of people getting, you know, miraculously better uh, when they're given remdesivir. However, randomised trials have not yet been reported and I just saw a preliminary report about an hour ago of a remdesivir trial in severe disease in China suggesting there was no effect, but that's not yet been peer-reviewed. Yeah, is that the one that was in a slightly a more severely ill population? That's right, yeah. And um, the, your population that you're testing uh, hydroxychloroquine and lepinavir on are hospitalised but not yet in ICU, and your outcome measure is whether they progress to ICU. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's it's certainly possible that a drug might not work in severe disease, but but would work in earlier disease. And that's the whole reason why we designed the trial this way is that we think that your your best chance of having a benefit is uh, when people start to get ill enough to get in hospital, because they're the ones that have a high chance of deteriorating, but before they've deteriorated. So look, we'd love to put remdesivir in as an arm in this trial, but as you mentioned earlier, it's just not available in Australia because um, Gilead have prioritised the supply to other countries. Look, even if you do get negative results in this trial, that's obviously just as important scientifically, but I bet you're all really hoping these drugs will work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, we're all waiting for a vaccine and we, we know that a vaccine is a long way off, whereas these drugs exist right now. So mm. if, if we have good data that 
they at least attenuate the severity of the disease and make it less likely people would need to go on a ventilator, for example, then that's a really important tool in our toolbox to control the virus and, and prevent deaths while we're waiting for a vaccine. And in another sign of just how desperate things are becoming, I've just seen this morning that uh, Donald Trump has suggested that injecting disinfectant is going to kill the virus. So we really, 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 really need good science to fight this kind of drivel. Yeah, we need politicians to stop talking about it too. Yeah, particularly that one. Yes. Um, I might just, if I might, uh, just discuss a brief anecdote because I think it's really instructive about these trials and these drugs. Please. Um, so there was a patient that I was looking after who had coronavirus in the hospital recently and was fairly elderly and had a lot of comorbidities. And as a result, it was decided with, you know, in consultation with the patient and his family that if he were to get really unwell and need to go to ICU, that that would not be offered. That would be the ceiling of care. And he did deteriorate to the point where he would have needed to be intubated and go to intensive care. He didn't go to intensive care. He was given oxygen on the ward and supportive care and he got better and has gone home. And the reason I think that's a really important story is that if he had been given even a single dose of any of these drugs, we would be saying, look, this is a miracle for me. You just dropped out again. I think you said if he did recover after being given a dose of one of those drugs, he'd be saying that was a miracle drug. Exactly, yeah. So if he recovered after being given a dose of any investigational agent, people would be saying it was a miracle drug and citing this anecdote as evidence. The point Mm. I'm making is people get better sometimes unexpectedly and really the only way of knowing if it's due to a drug is to do a randomised trial. Yes, indeed. Well, all the best with the ASCOT trial. Um, Professor Josh Davis, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on.